Death is a captivating experience. It's a fundamental aspect of life, yet so little is known about it. Cultures around the world have completely different views of death. Some cultures believe that death is merely a transition from one plane of existence to another. Others believe death is an excruciating experience of dying for the sinners and an easy passage to death for those who are good. So what should we really expect when we die? Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Think Twice. It's me again. For those who don't know me, my name is Ev, and I am your host for this brand new season of Think Twice. I'm a PhD student in neuroscience at Queen's University, and my research focuses on using gene therapy to treat central nervous system disorders. Today, we're starting our new season of Think Twice with a special episode just in time for Halloween. I'm talking with Dre about a spooky subject. We're talking about death, or I guess, near. Before we get into it, Dre, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Absolutely. Hi everyone, I'm Dere. I'm a PhD student here at Queen's University and my research looks at focus ultrasound and microbubbles, which are a novel therapeutic modality in treating brain tumors. However, today I will be talking about near-death experiences. Thank you for joining me today, Dere. Along with other amazing grad students, we've put together a podcast series as part of an outreach program with the Center for Neuroscience Studies at Queen's University in Kingston. And as you know, the podcast is entirely student-run and researched, and we tackle a variety of topics relating to cutting-edge research or controversies in the field of neuroscience. Our goal is to take you past the headlines and make you think twice about mainstream media topics related to the brain and to human behavior. If you like our podcast, make sure to rate us and make sure to share us with your friends. On that note, let's get right into our topic. I'm very excited today about our topic. I was wondering, Derek, can you tell me a little bit more about death? I know this might sound strange and super abstract, but what do we really know about death? What exactly is it? So death in literal terms is defined as a permanent cessation of all vital functions leading to end of life. We consider that once brain death occurs or when the brain stops functioning, there is a cessation of vital functions of the rest of the body. This is mainly because the brain is considered a master, if you will, of all other organs in the body. It controls the heartbeat, body temperature, metabolism, waste management, etc. Hence, once brain death occurs, the body is no longer able to sustain these crucial and essential functions and hence the body shuts down or dies. Okay, so when the brain stops working, that's when we consider the time of death. Sounds straightforward. But what about near death? You know, in theory, yes, when the brain dies, we're considered dead. But we know there are a bunch of accounts of people who have had near-death experiences, people who believe that they came back from the dead. What do we know about those? Can we say that it's when the brain is almost dead or something or something along those lines? It's hard to say. As the brain starts dying, we're not entirely sure what happens, but we do have accounts from many people who have undergone these near-death experiences. 
So near-death experiences can result from terrible accidents, cardiac arrest, asphyxia, shock, sector, essentially anything that deprives the brain from oxygen. Since the brain is extremely metabolically active, it requires a steady supply of oxygen and nutrients to maintain its functions. And if this supply is ever disrupted, it results in either hypoxia, which is a low level of oxygen reaching the brain, or worse, anoxia, which is characterized by a complete deprivation of oxygen. What is extremely perplexing is that despite the variance in how people may have gotten their injury that led them to have this near-death experience, and despite differences in age, background, gender, etc., the reported account of these near-death experiences are remarkably similar. There's even a website called Near-Death Experience Research Forum, or NDERF.org, that was established and it records accounts from near-death experiences from around the globe. It is still active if you're interested in learning more. The questionnaires on this website are about near-death experiences and are offered in over 20 languages, which widens its range of applicability by allowing individuals from all over the globe to share their near-death experiences. Yeah, that's really cool. And I'm curious to know, you know, just how similar people's near-death experiences are. Is it some kind of concrete feeling, like feeling warm and fuzzy kind of thing, or like a painful, burning feeling? Or is it something that's super abstract, like just feeling peaceful, you know? Yeah, that's a couple of different things that people report. Uh, One example of a near-death experience shared on the website I mentioned before, nderf.org, says, I was surrounded by a bright light from every direction, not just above me. I had the most peaceful feeling I've ever had. I can't explain it, and I never have experienced that before or after. I was told that I had a decision. This individual's near-death experience occurred as they hemorrhaged after having a C-section delivery. Another individual reports, my mother was caressing my forehead. I felt an indescribable sense of peace and love. I said to her that it is warm here and I feel so much love. She told me that I had to go back, that I had more to do. I told her that I did not want to go back and I like it here. I told my mom that I did not want to go back. This individual went through a near-death experience during a car crash. Hmm. That's super interesting that in both of these cases, there's sort of a mix of concrete and abstract feelings. And there is this choice or some kind of option to go back or to stay dead, really. Yeah, for sure. And in both of these experiences and many other that are described, these near-death experiences encompass a multitude of sensations, including some form of detachment from the physical body, a sense of elevation or levitation, feeling of being secure, warm, safe, even joy and fulfillment. It is also reported that Some individuals may experience a visual review of major life events or memories with loved ones, like your life literally flashing before your eyes, in addition to seeing the presence of a light and dead relatives and friends guiding them. On the contrary, some individuals have reported negative experiences as well, including feeling scared, experiencing some distress, emptiness, and even seeing darkness. It's really interesting that there's a lot of similarities in people's experiences with near death. We've talked about this a lot throughout different episodes, how everyone's experience with the stuff that we've been talking about in many of our episodes, like drugs, you know, or even mental health. We talked about how it's heavily context dependent. 
And I'm wondering if it's the same for these near-death experiences. You know, if you've led a life of, I don't know, crime or have a bunch of regrets, you automatically get a negative near-death experience. Whereas if you lived a peaceful life, do you get a positive near-death experience? But I mean, philosophy apart, from a purely scientific perspective, what do we think neurologically is causing these similar experiences? Well, scientific evidence cannot fully explain why these experiences happen and why they're similar for many people. There are some theories why these experiences occur in the first place. One theory is based on principles of evolutionary psychology, where the brain is considered an organ that is protective of itself, implying that the brain has the ability to recognize threats and dangerous circumstances and then initiate behaviors to protect itself and the body. For instance, think of accidentally placing your hand on a warm stove and the brain and spinal cord detect the heat signal almost instantaneously and initiate a pain response, which allows this individual to move their hand away to safety and recognize the hot stove as a threat. Similarly, when the body is severely injured and death is imminent, the brain reacts to the stressor and possibly is enabling pathways that have a protective and calming effect on the individual, which can present us feeling safe and warm and seeing positive memories and even a light. That's a really interesting theory that our brain is trying to protect us from death. But it is really just a theory at this point, right? Or is it actually supported by some kind of scientific evidence? It's also one of those things that's really hard to confirm, I guess, because when you're really dead, you can't come back to explain what happened. It's a pretty irreversible and final condition. Or at least from what we know of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but our understanding is still pretty limited. This area of study is currently being investigated thoroughly. There is an example from the study that was conducted by researchers at NYU Grossman School of Medicine that started back in May of 2017 and lasted till March 2020. In this study, a total of 567 males and female patients were recruited. These patients had their hearts stopped beating while being hospitalized and had received CPR. Only 53 out of the 567 patients survived and reported lucid experiences included separation from the body and observing events without experience of pain and distress. They also reported some form of review of life, including their memories, experiences, etc. These experiences fall in line with thousands of other accounts from near-death survivors. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, but then again, if they know how other people describe near-death experiences. I'm sure that could potentially influence their own account of what happened to them. Do we have something that's a little bit more convincing? I agree. That is exactly what it is. But I think what is so interesting about this study is that researchers were able to record brainwave activity of patients while they experienced these near-death events. So results from these scans show a spike in brainwave activity. This is very exciting because spiking brainwave activity is often indicative of higher mental functioning like thinking, memory, retrieval, perception of stimuli in conscious individuals. To give a little bit of background, there are five different types of brainwaves that are determined by the frequency or the speed at which neuronal circuits in the brain are active. Each of these types of brainwaves is associated with different states. For example, gamma waves are associated with concentration and higher mental functioning. Beta waves are associated with active attentive tasks. Alpha waves are associated with passive attention. 
Theta waves are associated predominantly with a relaxed state, while delta wave is normally associated with sleep. Of course, there are many other functions with which these waves are associated, but we will simply focus on these for today. So if we circle back to near-death experiences, we assume that the brain is shutting down. However, results from this study are showing a surge in brain activity, which could be responsible for why people report experiencing a near-death event that is unique conscious experience that is accompanied by awareness without distress and pain. Yeah, and from my understanding, it's relatively common for survivors of cardiac arrest to have these near-death experiences. There's reports from the early 2000s that mention anywhere between 12 to 18 percent of cardiac arrest survivors who experience these near-death experiences, or at least reported some features of them without necessarily naming them explicitly. And if I circle back to that study you were just mentioning, it's really interesting to me that there would be the surge in brain activity overall, but it doesn't seem to be specific to any kind of brain wave. So how do we know this isn't just an artifact from, you know, the resuscitation technique that we're using or something like that? It's kind of counterintuitive that you would have an increase in waves that are associated with sleep at the same time as waves that are associated with concentration and active or attentive tasks. Do we have more evidence that supports the study's findings? Yeah. So in another study, researchers looked at four comatose patients in a neurointensive care unit. These patients were undergoing EEG or electroencephalogram scans, which measure electrical activity in the brain using electrodes that are attached to your scalp. Patient EEGs were recorded prior to ventilators being removed and continued to measure patient brainwave activity after the withdrawal of any and all forms of life support. As these patients continue to die because of the hypoxic conditions in the brain, EEG reported an increase in gamma waves, particularly in the brains of these dying patients. Wow, that's really impressive. So when you die, you have this increase in gamma waves, which, as we talked about earlier, are associated with higher cognitive functions, which definitely includes memories. So this could potentially be the explanation for the whole life flashing before your eyes kind of experience. Yeah, for sure. It's also known that increased gamma waves are associated with high levels of concentration, and it can also promote higher states of awareness and increased brain function during meditation. There's been reports that high gamma activity can also improve cognition and problem-solving abilities and enhance memory retrieval in conscious individuals. So up to a certain degree, gamma waves can be considered the hallmark of consciousness. So it is very interesting that we see a rise in higher functioning in the brain as people are dying. Yeah, that's pretty surprising, especially because those waves are pretty demanding, energetically speaking, especially for a dying brain. You know, if you start taking away the brain's nutrient and oxygen supply, like we talked about before, which is what happens when you die, how is it even capable of producing the energy that's necessary to support all of this activity? It's definitely very, very interesting. And I think it's been hypothesized that this happens because dying brain removes natural inhibitory or breaking systems, which are collectively known as disinhibition. 
So the brain maintains a balance between firing signals and restraining signals in order to avoid overstimulation. Inhibition mechanisms are therefore responsible for restraining and preventing neurons from getting too trigger happy and from firing too much or responding to irrelevant stimuli. This inhibition, therefore, is removing these inhibitory processes that can then lead people to experience this new dimension of reality, including lucid recall of all stored memories from early childhood to death. What's also interesting is that despite medical professionals believing that brain death and irreversible permanent brain damage fully occur within 6 to 10 minutes of oxygen deprivation, results from the study mentioned above also stated that the brain can show signs of electrical recovery long into ongoing CPR, possibly indicating that there may be some awareness during cardiac arrest and other near-death experiences, which again falls in line with the reported accounts from many people who have had these near-death experiences. I guess that makes sense. It's a pretty common belief that when you talk to people when they're in the coma or when they go into cardiac arrest, they can still hear you. So from what you're saying, it sounds like that's actually supported by science, at least up to a certain degree. Absolutely. And you'll find this intriguing. There's another study that was published in July of 2023. So very, very recently, where they basically clamped a tablet or a computer over a patient's head when they were undergoing cardiac arrest. This tablet had an application containing independent audiovisual stimuli connected via Bluetooth headphones, and during the resuscitation attempts, the headphones were placed over the ears of the patient. One minute after being switched on, the tablet randomly projected one of the 10 stored images on the screen. And after five minutes, audio cues, which were usually three fruits, either apple, pears, or bananas, were delivered to the headphones every minute for five minutes. What's super cool is that their experimental design allowed them to study two very different types of memories in these survivors. They asked the survivors to randomly name three fruits and to randomly select an image on the tablet that they thought they might have been presented with during CPR. And let me guess, they were actually able to recall what fruits and what images they were presented. Absolutely. Or at least some patients were. This is much more convincing evidence that there may be some awareness or consciousness during this near-death experience that they're undergoing. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty unlikely that people would randomly select the audio and the visual stimuli that they were presented with when they were dying. I do have a bit of a hard time wrapping my head around what this all means, though. Yeah, for sure. It is a very interesting, complex topic. So just a few key things here are that near-death experiences may occur due to a variety of reasons, but they often lead to very similar experiences for people, which include a pleasant feeling of fulfillment, lack of pain, suffering, some sort of review of memories, life events, and some sort of sense of levitation or elevation in some cases even. These experiences seem to be very similar, likely because our brains are reacting to oxygen deprivation, leading to a higher degree of brain stimulation. Secondly, there is some degree of consciousness and awareness even when there may be a lack of physical signs for a conscious experience. Data from CPR patients is indicative of them being able to hear and even visually be aware of stimuli around them. During this time, the increased gamma waves of the brain may be responsible for this improved memory processing and recall. Additionally, why the brain reacts to oxygen deprivation by increasing brain wave activity is not currently known. Could this be protective to ease the stress of imminent demise or simply misfiring of neurons? It's very hard to say. It is worth noting that many people who have had a near-death 
near-death experience interpret it with a spiritual or mystical lens as these experiences tend to be extremely lucid. Future research definitely needs to explore this phenomenon further as it would be helpful in preparing people, especially people in palliative care, to be better equipped to deal with these experiences. Yeah, that makes sense. There's still some stuff that's a little bit unclear for me because You know, at the beginning of the episode, we talked about how death is considered the brain dying, but here we're looking at cardiac arrest, and the brain really isn't dead at that point. So I'd be curious to know what the difference is between death and near death, which is what we've been talking about through this episode. I guess we'll never really know, or maybe someday, but not anytime soon. And the other thing is that for these studies, we're really relying pretty heavily on firsthand accounts and self-report questionnaires, which are known to have some degree of bias. So we do have to take that into consideration when we're interpreting those results. Except for the whole recalling audio and visual stimuli thing, that's really convincing and quite frankly, a little bit creepy. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, You're absolutely right, Ev. Well, thank you so much for this super interesting conversation with me today, Jerry. That brings us to the end of our spooky Halloween episode. I hope our listeners enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. And before we wrap up, I have one last important message for our listeners. Unfortunately, due to budget cuts in the Center for Neuroscience Studies, we are no longer being financially supported to produce this podcast. But have no fear, we're not going anywhere. We love what we do, and we are going to be giving up anytime soon. So how can you help us continue to produce high quality evidence-based episodes? Well, you can check out our Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee pages linked in the episode description and found in our link tree in our Instagram bio. These are both easy to use platforms where you can donate to our initiatives and no matter how much or how little you decide to share with us, we really appreciate your generosity. And if you can't contribute financially and you're part of the Queen's University community, feel free to reach out and volunteer with us. Also, if you're currently researching the brain and would like to share your research with us, feel free to reach out. We're always looking for students who are passionate about science translation and evidence-based content creation to join our team. No previous podcast experience needed. You can DM us on social media. We're really everywhere at this point. Or you can shoot us an email if you want at thinktwicepodcast at outlook.com. On that note, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Think Twice, and see you next time.